Hello folks, it's Shabri Bird here at Quantum Agriculture. I'm sitting with Darren Jaffe, old friend and dear heart. We are, Darren was an apprentice for Hugh Lovell at Union Agricultural Institute in 1996. And welcome, Darren. Thank you, Shabri. Oh, uh, can you just give us a short history of your farming experience and... Short history, huh? Um, <laughs> Well, I started out in farming as a freshman in college in University of Wisconsin-Madison. I had a curiosity as I was eating a turkey sandwich one day about where this thing came from and how come I haven't grown anything that I eat. And I started to inquire at the agriculture school uh, to... <clears throat> Go ahead. I started to inquire at the agricultural school at Madison about uh, getting involved in an organic farm internship for the summer. And so, long story short, I spent a summer at a great farm uh, the year before apprenticing with you called the Prairie Dock Farm with a farmer named Greg David. And he really uh, got me started and got me uh, juiced on the philosophy and the importance of the work and work ethic and vision. And I, so I did a few apprenticeships. I did an apprenticeship with Greg for a full season. And then, um, and then I found Hugh when I was visiting my family in Atlanta, trying to convince them that dropping out of school to pursue a career in biodynamic farming wasn't completely crazy. And so in an attempt to get them on an actual farm, I looked to see if there was any farms around where they lived in, in Georgia. And sure enough, there was a biodynamic CSA farm 20 minutes away. So in the car we went, met Hugh, got a sense of what was going on at UAI, and I applied for an apprenticeship there the following following season. Um, and honestly, it was just a, you know, a, a chunk of time in my life where I had found my passion, and I was so eager to learn, and I was absorbing as much as I could from mentors like you, I was attending the biodynamic conferences, I was reading books, I was listening to lectures, I was just taking it all in. My, my first exposure, actually, before I did my first apprenticeship in Wisconsin was at the Michael Fields Institute. Um, I, I went to a weekend biodynamic workshop and I met the likes of Ruth Sinecker, Walter Goldstein, Char, uh, Chuck Mann, um, Bruce Blevins was teaching the course at the time. And that was really my first, like, you know, exposure to biodynamics. And I was given a few books, yeah, How to Know Higher Worlds and Theosophy and Occult Science before I could read the agriculture lectures. And I was down the rabbit hole. <clears throat> um, and over the years, uh, after a few apprenticeships, I bought a farm in southwest Wisconsin, just outside of a town called Viroqua, um, about 173-acre old dairy farm that had been severely neglected and turned it around and kind of um, healed the, the land and the home and, and, and brought it into production and built a community there around the farm. We had about 18 of us living there at one point and we were you know, running a CSA and we partnered with the local Pleasant Ridge Waldorf School to bring field trip groups out from the school and we sold into the co-ops and uh, local co-ops but also in Madison and in um, restaurants as far as Chicago and Minneapolis. But our main market was Madison, the farmer's market and the CSA. 
And um, after a few years, three years of doing that, um, I started to get kind of um, itchy feet that I felt like I needed to be more in the mainstream. I felt like I was a little isolated. Um, I was, you know, far away from the nearest city, and I felt I felt like there was this movement wasn't moving fast enough. And so I started to explore. I got in. I bought a food truck, a falafel cart, in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, I had a little side pizza business as well that I had started um, on my farm. Uh, I was just down the road from Organic Valley, so I was getting all their uh, excess cheese scraps and built a business off of that. And then, any you know, social entrepreneur at heart, entrepreneur as I as I commonly go by. Um, so anyway, so I, I I just realized that this work needed to go where the people are, right? Getting people out to my farm wasn't so easy. So I said, how can I bring the farm to them? And so I started working more in an urban context. Um, I sold my farm. Um, long story short, and I moved because I was uh, recruited for a position in San Francisco with a nonprofit called SLUG, San Francisco League of Urban Gardeners. And they were using uh, urban agriculture as a tool for social justice and job creation, and I was really inspired by, by that kind of work. And um, I ran a farm and a youth prison for a year, a place called Log Cabin Ranch. And I worked with Slug to develop some of their social enterprise ventures, a comp- urban earth composting initiative, and um, a few other a few other interesting projects they had. And that sent me on a on a different track, which was um, to, I went back to school to study landscape architecture, because what Mohammed Nuru, the director at the time, the executive director of Slug, was that University of Georgia? You went back to yeah, I went back to the University of Georgia. Um, to study landscape architecture, mainly because I thought that as a way to bring farms and um, gardens into the mainstream was to design them into existing places like public parks and um, schools and hospitals and prisons and communities, neighborhoods. Um, So I really wanted to learn how to design the farms and um, work more in that planning and architecture space. I saw it firsthand in my work with, with Mohammed at Slug and the power of that and partnering with the city and getting contracts to really transform spaces. And, and that's really my passion. Really, when I think about it, it's, it's often it's about using gardens and, and farms to transform spaces and therefore transform people and build community around food. And so, um, you know, I wrote a book years later called Citizen Farmers that really kind of echoes that, that idea and kind of tries to inspire people that that's, an, that that's something we can aspire to as a society, but it starts with the individual and the relationship they have with the plant, especially a plant that they eat or that's that medicine. So it's really about, you know, from, I had a personal journey and I see it often in people where when you have a relationship with the land through, through growing things, um, especially when you're growing really nutritious food that's, you know, that you can feel, at, that really starts to um, connect people more deeply to themselves and, and to the land and to community, and, 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 and therefore it's, that, that starts to ripple out to, you know, address so many of the issues that we have that start with our own health, but, but grow out to the health of our families, our our neighborhoods, our, our society. Um, I think that food, growing food, is at the heart 
and kind of the intersection of all these different problems we have and opportunities we have around healthcare, around education, around um, food access, around um, building community and, and development, and around business and economics, and um, around policy and government. I mean, it really intersects, and so <clears throat> it really has such a powerful role to play as a central um, a central element of how we can look at building a more just, resilient, vibrant economy and ecology and society. So I became very passionate about that work. Um, once again, I, I studied, I went back to school. I, I started a nonprofit while I was at school in Georgia, um, building gardens and Jewish summer camps. I had this kind of side interest while I was on my farm um, in Wisconsin and babysitting a friend of mine's daughter who was going to Jewish summer camp. And she was showing me the video of her Jewish summer camp and the kind of promotional video. And it hit something in me where I realized personally a big part of my journey was inspired by my experience at Jewish summer camp as a kid. And just being in the woods and, you know, being free in nature. And um, But there was a missing piece, which was the food was terrible at summer camp. And there was never a connection made between my Jewish roots and agriculture. And I started to um, think about how that could be um, a real value add, a real uh, enhancement of the summer camp experience. Give all these young children, often overprivileged you know, children who are going to these Jewish summer camps for the summer, they're captive, they're getting, for the first time, they're really getting exposed to um, a connection to nature. And what an opportunity to expose them also to this connection to agriculture. And so I put together a concept to build a farm at a Jewish summer camp. Um, years later, I did it. <clears throat> it was very successful, became a national model, and I ended up getting a grant um, and kick-started my nonprofit to build farms and gardens in Jewish summer camps, uh, Jewish community centers, Jewish retreat centers, Jewish synagogues. Um, so I did that for a number of years. And it grew into a consulting practice. It kind of grew from a nonprofit um, to a little more of a consult fee-for-service model where I was basically helping design um, and build and train staff to manage these gardens and farms. And while I was doing that and in landscape architecture school, um, I realized it was too much. And, and at, well, when I went to the University of Georgia, I got hired by a professor there, an amazing ecology professor, agroecology What's professor. What's the name? Dr. Carl Jordan, he owned 100 acres uh, just outside of Athens. He invited me to live in the home on the farm, and uh, he had a grant which he helped, which funded me to launch a organic farm, biodynamic farm on his land so that his students could do research on it. He needed a working farm so that his ecology students could do interesting agroecology research. And so I launched this farm and was in school and had this nonprofit and went, oh my God, I can't do all these things. This is too much. I can't, I can't do it. And so I went to the dean and I said, dean, I've got a real problem. Like I want to be in landscape architecture school, but I have this nonprofit that's taken off and I'm running this farm and I just can't do it all. And I don't know what to do. And he said, you know what? You need to, you should drop out of school. It's like people come here to get degrees so they can create opportunities for themselves. You've got opportunities coming out of your ears. Here's a, you know, I'm going to give you a hardship exemption, a career opportunity exemption, so you get out without any negative impacts on your, if you ever want to come back, 
And by the way, he said to me, there's this project that you should go check out. They could really use your, your consulting services. It's called Serenby. And it's this hamlet. It's a tran they're transferring development rights to build a, a village type community. And they have an organic farm plan, but they haven't started it yet. And I said, well, that sounds interesting, but I just, yeah, I just told you I had too much on my plate. That's like another thing on my plate. And so I kind of backburnered it. And a few, I don't know, months, maybe a year later, um, I found myself at Serenby. Coincidentally, serendipitously, I was on the, had come on the board for Georgia Organics and we were hosting a fundraiser there. And I, I was looking for a bathroom and I stumbled in on Steve, the founder. And he said, I've been waiting for you to show up. You know, what are you waiting for? And he said, get in the truck. I'm going to show you around. And he showed me the vision. And it was just a trail through the woods. And he was describing these houses and these trails and the farm and the arts village and the healing village. And, and I thought, wow, this is, you know, it, it really took me back to when I was on my own farm in Wisconsin and my vision when I was, I didn't talk about this in the interview yet, but when I was debating whether or not to sell the farm, which was a really hard thing to do, um, I had all these other ideas before I res res resorted to sell it. I thought, well, what if I built a community here and I got other people to buy in on the land and that helped to take my debt down and bring some revenue in and create community. And that's really what I, what I want to do. I don't want to just be a market farmer driving to town. I want to like build a community kind of inspired by a lot of the biodynamic communities around the world and um, like Hawthorne Valley and other places. So that was overwhelming and I couldn't pull that together. And so I sold the farm, but here was somebody who was building the community <laughs> and I had an opportunity to focus on what I was good at, which was the farm. And so I took the opportunity and I set the farm up at Serenby and um, dropped out of school again. Um, well, that, that time and, and ended up, um, not realizing it, but basically kind of found myself getting, becoming kind of a pioneer and leading expert in this agrihood concept of building farms and communities. And I learned so much at Serenby, the three years of setting that up um, and working with the development, you know, and, and how to kind of... Yeah, you brought you in as a lecturer there. I, I oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we even had a broadcast. Well, Se you remember that. September 2004. Yeah. yeah. That was the month that four hurricanes hit uh, Florida. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So then after Serenby. So that kind of Serenby basically um, was the beginning of another chapter, I'd say, in my life mm -hmm. where the next 15 years, and still to this day, um, that was, yeah, 2003 to 2005 was really the, 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 the potent years there, 02 to 05. Um, where I started to make that my focus was to help other communities, other master plan developers put integrate farms. And basically agriculture is becoming the new golf. And so you had all these communities that were saying, well, how do, you know, and how do I incorporate a farm, a community garden into my neighborhood? You know, so I would help them with the feasibility um, land assessment, design of the farm, programming of the farm, budgeting of the farm, implementation of the farm, staffing, developing their say, CSAs and their programs and their outreach to the community. And it was really what I, I, I found kind of, I think, a sweet spot for me because I really liked that part of it. I like getting the farms up and running. 
And then when it was kind of in the maintenance mode, I was like getting itchy again to start another project. I wanted to see more farms. I kind of considered myself kind of a farm starter of sorts at the time, seeding new farms. And, and I liked the dynamic nature of different projects, different climates, different culture, different communities, different goals, different scales. Um, <clears throat> but all, all sharing this, um, you know, community farming narrative. Um, and, and there's also, uh, I think I had seen over the years how much my farming friends struggled to make it, to make a living at it. And I just saw this as a really interesting opportunity where a lot of like having bought my own farm and had to get loans and the stress of being under a mortgage and debt and farming from that place is very difficult as opposed to farming from a more creative space where you're not under those kinds of pressures, um, but more the pressures of impact and, and high quality food. And um, <clears throat> so the development supported agriculture model was really in interesting to me because the developer provided the land, the capital for infrastructure, mm -hmm. even some of the uh, funding for staffing, marketing, HR, a lot of the stuff that farmers aren't typically well suited to do. Um, and at the same time, it had a, had a real benefit for the farmer in that in addition to covering the capital costs, they had an, a, a, a direct market. They had to build a relationship with people coming and moving in and living by the farm. One of the big challenges or frustrations when I was two hours, you know, I had to, the only place I could afford to buy a farm was hours away from the city. Yeah. And then that just forces you, pushes you as a, as a individual, as a farmer and your staff away from having that convenient access to culture and community in a city. But it also pushes the consumer far away so they don't have the opportunity to engage with the farm on a regular basis. And I think that's really important for both. And so the idea of putting the farm in yeah. the neighborhood solved those issues and the transportation burden. Which was urban, urban you remember models. driving to Atlanta sucked. I mean, two yeah. hours. I mean, yeah. yeah. No, so what takes I, you off the farm. That just made it uh, at least a third again harder. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. well, he was opening up markets that didn't have existence before. You know, I mean, he was starting farmers markets yeah. to have a model. Can I ask you a question then? Yeah. When, what, what, where did you? There are two projects that you've done that so mightily impress us also. One of them is Farmer D Organics. You want to talk about that? Yeah, so it's right on time. So right around 2000, um, so a couple things happened around 07, um, right before the crash. One was I had, um, I was running the farm at Hampton Island, and I had met Mike Smith of Longwood Plantation, composter, retired uh, chemical engineer and composter in, in uh near Savannah, Georgia. And he was making some of the best compost I'd ever seen. And I was buying it by the, you know, truckload for the farm. And we were on the board together for Georgia Organics. And one day he said to me, you know, Farmer D, I've been getting some press from Serenby and from Hampton Island. And I've been getting a lot of exposure from these projects because they were all getting national press. And he said, you know, your brand, I love your brand. I, I love what you're doing. And I'm kind of an old guy making compost out here in the boonies. Would you consider kind of marketing the compost under, you know, under your name? And I, you know, I thought, well, that's a really cool idea. You know, this is a good product that I could get behind. Um, so I said, well, how about if we make it biodynamic? And 
then I would be really excited to, to, to develop and brand a, a biodynamic compost. And I turned to one of the whole guys on our board that was at Whole Foods, and I said, what are you guys doing with all the food that you don't sell? Are you composting it? He said, no, it goes in the garbage in the landfill. And I said, well, would you be open to it? He said, we're trying to do it. I said, we would love to do that. It's part of our mission. And so I started down this road with Whole Foods and with Mike to develop a biodynamic compost with Whole Foods and have Whole Foods as a partner, both for their organics that they were throwing away and also as a retail outlet for the product. And it worked. And we, it, took a, it took a while. It took a year and a half or two to get the product to the market. Um, I try, that's a story within itself. But we got it on the, on the, on the, on the market and branded a really nice, high-quality, first Demeter-certified biodynamic compost on the retail market. And that was in the front door of 27 Whole Foods stores. And it was great. I mean, it wasn't a big moneymaker. We sold some compost, but we got a lot of people excited about compost. And a lot of people realized that compost can be a whole, they had never seen compost like this. Well, not, if it wasn't biodynamic, they hadn't. Yeah. So what about the Farmer G brand? When did you start that? So that, I mean, in a way, that was it, right? Oh, so I that was, that. I mean, that was the first product to really? market. I mean, back in my early days in Wisconsin, you know, I had the falafel cart and the pizza, it was Farmer G's pizza, but oh, it was, was never, it? you know, oh, it never okay. went big like this. This became, you know, this got in front of millions of eyes. And <clears throat> so what was interesting so that, that was the first product, a biodynamic compost. Um, and then we realized that people didn't know how to use compost. And as much as you put the instructions on the bag, you had to give it to them in a planting mix. So they didn't have to figure out what the ratio of the mix it was. So then we built, we developed a planting mix, which was 30, uh, was about 30% compost and, and then a, a aged bark and a peat that was from the farm. And, and we developed this uh, raised bed mix. And, and then I thought, well, they also need the fertilizer. And we couldn't put the fertilizer in the mix because they could heat it up. The compost microbes would start eating the fertilizer. So we created a new product, which is a custom uh, organic fertilizer that Pertrell blended specifically based on the analysis of our planting mix. So we got this really sweet little mix going. It was kind of like, you know, the coffee with a little bit of sugar, so to speak. So. You then and then, I said to my dad, you know, been, he's a wood, my dad's a phenomenal woodworker. His whole life he's been a woodworker. It's his passion. And we've always talked about doing something together. I said, why don't we build some raised beds in the shop in the garage and sell the whole kit? You get the raised bed, you get the planting mix, the fertilizer, and you give people a really easy ratio, and people's gardens are going crazy. I mean, people were coming into this and telling them so. So then, so then we, we, we opened a retail. So 2008 hit, and the economy crashed, and I had a, over a dozen consulting clients, including Richard Branson's Virgin Spa, Palmetto Bluff, one of the, the leading spas in the country. You know, I mean, major clients, Sea, sea Island, um, and they all went in, either they went bankrupt or they went into freeze mode. Nobody was spending any money. I mean, it was a crash. I had maybe three clients that just happened to be individually wealthy that didn't quit. But most of them just went overnight. And so I said, okay, well, this is an interesting opportunity. <laughs> um, and so I decided um, I had gained a good bit of traction on my website, farmerd.com, because of all the exposure from the Whole Foods compost, from all the press and the 
projects I've been doing. And so I thought, you know, I should develop my website and build an online store. There's nowhere you can go online that's like really, other than like Peaceful Valley, Grow Organic, but for the retail consumer, there weren't many places you could go to find good organic product. So I had this business idea, maybe I'll create an online store. And I found out very quickly that to do that, you really need a brick and mortar store to have a whole, certain wholesale accounts. If you want to wholesale certain products, you really need a physical store. They won't sell to just any Joe Schmo. And at the website. same time, those great garden stores in Atlanta shut down. What, yeah, Pikes. Pikes shut down. Uh, yeah. The drought was really hitting Pikes hard. And people weren't traveling, so people were staying yeah. home. Gardening kind of was coming back in because of that. You know, when the economy crashes, that tends to be people go back to growing food. And so I converted our family car wash uh, across the street from a Whole Foods on Briarcliff, where you used to have a little market stand. You did the same. Yeah, you did a market yeah. stand down there. And, um, and we opened in December of 2008, Farmer D Organics flagship retail store. I didn't think we'd do well, You were on the board. You were, we were doing board meetings in UAL. Right, and UAL I remember you said, I'm going to do my online store. And it, I couldn't believe it. I mean, people were showing up by the, you know, dozens every day. So they couldn't, they were just starving for this. And so we started, we started south, we started, we converted the car wash tunnel into a wood shop and we moved the car wash back outside and kept the car wash, but we moved the, we built the wood shop in there and we were building raised beds to order right there. Cut, cut different size cedar boards, nice two inch FSC red cedar. And we started building raised beds, then we started installing them for people. We have bulk planting mix in the back that we load up by the yard waste bag or by the pickup truck load, or we deliver, we bought a trailer and we started delivering seven yards at a time and putting in gardens all over Atlanta. For seven years now, eight years, we've been building hundreds of gardens all and over And still, in, you're doing a lot of school projects too. We've done a lot of school gardens, uh, restaurant gardens, hospitals, um, tons of residential. And, um, Was Farmer D Organic still maintaining them, or we maintain some? Yeah. We encourage people to maintain their own, but some we have a few. Um, we have maybe about a dozen to twenty a year that we mm -hmm. maintain for people. Um, we maintain the Children's Hospital, Scottish Rite Garden. That's a nice one for that we like to do. And do you still have your online store? Yeah, but honestly, it's funny. The online store became more of a headache, and oh, and the retail store took all of our attention because you know when a customer walks in the store, you, you know it's a different yeah. story than. So we kind of backburnered the the re, the online, and we focused on retail and wholesale. And then I like that then, you had children's garden tools on your online store. Yeah, I we love used, that. We sell that stuff. We have you know in the store we have a whole children's gardening section, and we have little baby chicks in the spring, and you know we sell everything from bulk compost and organic chicken feed and fertilizers to. Organic seeds. So who's managing that business now that you're in California? We have a good staff there. We have great staff, that, and we do. Um, we just redesigned. We just expanded it to add a design studio in the in the store. It's beautiful. Where, where our design team, consulting team, does design work locally and and nationally out of there. So um, so it's interesting. So so the, so then what happened? We decided we would do um, a trade show. For the wholesale, now we've built up quite a line of products with the raised beds and these kits. And my dad's background was in wholesale. He did uh, wholesale sheepskins and floor mats and manufacturing. He's been in manufacturing and retail his whole life. 
So we decided to, to take a stab at doing some um, wholesale business with the raised beds and the compost beyond Whole Foods. And we got picked, we did a trade show in Chicago, hmm. the Independent Garden Center show. And a woman came up to me and she said, oh my God, who is Farmer D? And I said, it's me. She said, tell me your story. I told her a little bit about me and she says, I want you to be our poster child basically for the launch of our new agrarian catalog. And I was like, well, who, who are you guys? I'm with William Sinema. Wow. Like, wow, that's cool. You guys are getting into agrarian? And they said, yep. And we want it to be authentic. And we want it on the story of the manufacturer made in the USA and the farmer. And so nine months later, we are on the front page of their launch of William Sonoma Agrarian, Farmer D products and my whole bio. And, and that really jump-started our wholesale business. We moved out of the, um, we eventually moved out of the car wash tunnel and rented a 6,000 square foot warehouse in Tucker, which is where we are now. And we've been manufacturing out of there for four years and doing wholesale. And the compost still being made? Compost still being made. Um, we abandoned the biodynamic certification, and that's a long story. Um, my manufacturer just had kind of enough of the what he considered the bureaucracy of the audit trail and the all this Demeter, stuff. Demeter, yeah. yeah. And I could only convince him so far, and so we, we have an organic compost. We're not, we use the preps, but we just don't certify it. Um, and of it course, you get your compost. preps from Hugh Courtney at Earth Legacy. We do. The best preps of all made by Hugh Courtney. We've been buying them for a long time. So, um, so anyway, so that was, um, so the wholesale business has, has been growing. We just got into Target online this year, so we'll see how that yeah. goes. Um, it's small, but it's growing, and so it's, you know, making now something. your current project. Right. So in 2011, um, the economy started to turn around, and what was interesting is a lot of these developers had enough time to actually get their heads out of their asses and think about what's really trendy, what's really the future of communities, and instead of just building the same old crap, which a lot of them have been doing, they they had a little time to re recalibrate and then the phone started ringing like crazy because people were like we were, were firing it back up and we have we want to redo the master plan and we want to rethink our community and we wanted to focus around food and sustainability and wellness and we'd love to do a farm and and so I and I got excited I was like this is what I really love doing and so I, I moved myself out of the retail and the wholesale business went back into consulting full swing and started taking on a lot more of those types of projects. And so from 2011 to 2014, I ramped back up again. And, and, I, did, and I stumbled on one project in particular, <clears throat> which was extremely unique and is where I'm based now, which is um, in Encinitas, California, just north of San Diego. And at the, so in about 2012, I started consulting for the Leash Tag Foundation. And the Leashtag Foundation um, had been around for about eight or nine years, but they'd just been out of a little office in Carlsbad doing uh, grant making. They'd given, given around $90 million in grants, um, casting the legacy of the Leashtag family, who, the, where we're sitting right now, this is their home. In this, they, they lived here at La Costa in their late, late years. And um, They lived in this they, resort complex? Yeah. Yeah, oh, really? that's why we have these villas here. Is we they we the foundation inherited three of their villas, 
And they, they were, you know, um, they grew up in abject poverty. He was a self-made man. He was a very successful pharmacist, um, made a lot of money, and left 98% of his wealth to the foundation to do good work around fighting poverty, fostering more vibrant Jewish life, and connection, and really showcasing the side of Israel that's really beyond the conflict, the innovation side and, um, of Israel. And the farming side, Israel's. Yeah, wow. yeah. Um, so, so, the, so after the Lishtag family passed away in the late 2000s, the foundation kicked in about 100, over $100 million um, uh, in, in their trust, and they started looking at what they wanted to do and how they wanted to make an impact. And one of the, the I think, brilliant ideas um, that the CEO, Jim Farley, had was to buy the last agricultural property in Encinitas that um, was at, as low as 67 and a half acres in the middle of town, located adjacent to the San Diego Botanic Garden, the Eki YMCA, which has 22,000 members of the Y, um, the uh, Seacrest Retirement Village, the, the Jewish Retirement Village, with 285 seniors aging in place. Um, the Botanic Garden has 250,000 visitors a year. And also next door is a, a, a public school that's building a farm lab, a farm to teach science and nutrition to all the elementary school and eventually middle school children in Encinita School District. And then a heritage museum, um, the San Diego Heritage Museum, which teaches third grade curriculum around uh, agricultural heritage of the area. And so here we are nestled, and then residential, all around us, you know, dense residential. We're a mile from the beach, um, we're a mile from downtown Encinitas. Uh, we're in the middle of this uh, nonprofit cluster. Um, we call it the E3 cluster, the Encinitas Envir Environmental Education Cluster. And we just, what an opportunity to root a, a biodynamic farm that's focused, a Jewish community farm. And one of, so one of the things that, that, that the foundation saw um, happening around the country, which speaks back to my, my Jewish farming background, was that there's these Jewish community farms that have popped up around the country. And they're serving a really interesting, um, you know, they're, they're, they've become these really important platforms for attracting uh, a, the next generation of, of you know, Jews that are interested not so much in the institutional Judaism of the past and going to synagogue and, you know, the JCC per se, but more interested in social and environmental justice and living their Jewish values and being more connected to the Jewish rhythms, which are very much tied to agriculture. And that disconnect is, um, it, that there's, there's, a, there's a, whether people realize it or not, this is a, a really strong connection point for them. Um, and Encinitas, North County, San Diego in particular, has a very diverse Jewish community. Most, over 75% of the Jews in North County are journeying through life with somebody of another faith. Um, less than 10% actually go or members of a Jewish synagogue or institution. Well, that's probably true of every Catholic and every other religion here, too. I don't know, but, but we did the research on the Jewish community, <coughs> and, which is growing, but it's they're looking for um, places to connect that are more accessible, that are more rooted, that are... Um, that so, and so the Jewish community farm um, both provides that venue for everybody from preschool kids on the farm to you know young families to seniors 
um, and everything in between. It provides um, a meaningful platform for uh, being able to celebrate and connect with the Jewish agricultural rhythms, the Jewish agricultural holidays um, in a real way, really living those, those traditions, living, living them and, and experiencing them firsthand. And then also it provides a social justice platform for us to live out these, um, pay, the values of paya, of donating the percentage of the harvest, um, of opening your fields to the community during the Shemitah year, during the, the sabbatical year. Um, there's Tsar uh, Bal Chaim, the care of animals, for us to demonstrate how animal welfare, um, and how uh, on a farm, how animals should be raised. Um, it gives us an opportunity to um, to live out this these values of Bal Tashvit, of not wasting and composting and, and caring for the land and um, resources and, you know, so it's it's a really it's a really powerful platform, and it's and it's called a platform. It's just the way people lived for thousands of years. It was like the religion just was part more part of a cult, agricultural lifestyle, which has been very much lost through the diaspora and through you know the Holocaust. And people have been Jews have been removed from their land for a long time, and it's coming back to those roots that's so important. And um, and it and it's a platform for a dialogue across faiths. Also. Yeah, because you said it's not all Jewish. No, it's much. It's, <coughs> it's, it's rooted and informed by this ancient Jewish wisdom or ancient Jewish traditions and values, but it's really, it's really about being. Um, it's it's also about modeling and and um, the benefits of a community farm. Yes. To to a, to a community and looking at uh, localizing the food system and looking at um, connecting people with their food and. Um, I also love that you yeah. created that hub of all these nonprofits. Yeah, so on the, the farm itself. Yeah, okay. so the the hub is um, the farm is called Coastal Roots Farm, and it's its own five hundred one c three nonprofit entity. It's um, on about twenty acres of the sixty seven and a half acres that it manages a series of gardens and vineyards and food forests and animals and compost. <clears throat> um, it runs robust programming on the farm and it partnered, the far, Coastal Roots partners with the neighbors in the mm -hmm. E3 cluster and we um, and integrating them into the farm and us into them. Um, like like this weekend we'll be selling plants at the San Diego Botanic Gardens, their plant sale and leading workshops and and then um, the hub is we took one of our barns and created a co-working space for nonprofits of which Coastal Roots Farm is one of the hub members but there's a, a 20 for other organizations in there that are doing amazing work around the, the, the strategy, the four strategic areas of the Leash Act Foundation. So around self-sufficiency, so a number of nonprofits focused around gleaning and food justice and social justice, um, immigration uh, work, refugee work. Then there's um, organizations working around Jewish life and different ways of fostering more vibrant Jewish life in North County. And then there's organizations focused around environmental education and permaculture, and um, and, is, and we have organizations now the Israel centers moving in there. So organizations that are really doing uh, good work around uh, kind of cross pollinating Israeli innovation and technology in California around water, around agriculture. Um, so it's it's becoming a real hive of activity, and the farm is kind of what roots it in a way that I think makes it really unique too. Is that it's grounded in, in place and 
in these what we're in these ancient kind of like important uh, rhythms that we're able to provide to everybody there and kind of start to build community and um, and raise awareness and, and, and kind of activate the, the community around these different issues. And people are coming from all over the world here. Um, so not only us, the foundation and the farm and the hub, but also the organizations there in the hub and organizations in the neighborhood are starting to use our site. You, you, you built a community convene. garden too? The community garden was an initiative of, there is a community garden in the neighborhood across the street on the school site. That was an initiative of an independent nonprofit called Antonio's Community Garden. And it was the first community garden to go in in Encinitas, which is kind of shocking that it took this long. But um, part of it was some issues with the zoning and the mm -hmm. policy, the urban ag policy. And so we, I've been on the committee to help rewrite the urban ag policy for the city to make it more. Their community gardens weren't in there, so they didn't know how to classify them. They were, it was just, you know, the... the Hey, you're great at creating new models. Just doing that compost with a new model. You know? Yeah, an old one that that, yeah. that made sense. You know, that it's just when you start to, I don't know. Well, I wanted model. to ask you a question. Yeah. So, you know, five, you, five, got five minutes. you've always been very disciplined, very committed, very centered, carrying plans through. What is the vision that lights you up, that generates this? Hmm. Um, I mean, for, for me, it's the citizen farmer, right? It's this whole idea of like, how do we, um, at all levels, from our individual to our family, to our schools, our places of work, our places of worship, the communities, the neighborhoods that we live in, um, our cities, um, our, our hospitals and our prisons, uh, how do we really start to shift and transform the way that our food is produced and the way that we have a relationship with that food. And I think through that, we can solve so many of the other issues that I think are, are, uh, are kind of caused by the lack of that connection and that, that quality of food, right? So a lot of these health issues, um, a lot of these issues around poverty and around uh, food insecurity, so what drives, I guess what drives me is, um, I, I just, I, I see so many opportunities um, for bringing agriculture into um, better forms of agriculture into um, so many places within our society, within this country, but around the world. I think it could provide so much um, both benefit for people and communities and obviously for the earth. and. Um, for future generations, and I just I think we need to we really need to have a grassroots kind of revolution of citizen farmers that wherever they are, whether they're in their boardroom or their classroom, it, or you know even if they're not necessarily out there on the farm, we need more farmers. There's no doubt about that. Um, but everybody needs to play a role, and so we need to get the developers on board. We need to get the policymakers on board. We need to get the academics on board. We need to get the doctors on board. We need, so and it's, it's a, happening. It is, it is. It's starting to happen. So how, I think one of the ways to make it to accelerate it is to create more opportunities for people to interact with growing food, huh. right? And so that's the basis. It's like how do we create more and more of you know, more and more opportunity, more and more people growing something right from kindergarten up. Yeah, 
and, and that's a big part of what's driving what we're doing here and, and in all the farms that I work with and consult with, um, it's okay, how do you integrate with the education system from P to 16, from preschool to college? And that's a big focus of ours with, with partnering with the school district. We manage the farm for them to use the school district. It grows food for all the schools. And then we bring the kids to the farm and we're working with the middle school and the high school and college interns. And I think that's key in 4-H and future farmers. And, you know, I went on the board for the Farm Bureau this last year. I mean, there's, there's, there's so, and you, the extension agencies and the land grant institutions, there's so many resources out there already mm. that need to be, um, activated and dire I think directed more around. <clears throat> there, there, I think there's two important things here. I mean, one is agriculture as a whole is so important, and like inspiring a generation of farmers. Period. Not dogmatic around what kind of farming, just farming, right? That's first and foremost, and celebrating that heritage and the importance of it. And and raise, there's a lot of issues in farming around farm worker rights, around the way you know farming's done that needs to be talked about. And to create an open dialogue around that has to be um, respectful of the agricultural field as a whole mm. and the importance of it. And then I think the second piece is, okay, well, what are the right types of farming for the different scales and places and trying to push the envelope and, and yeah, you know, and try to really learn from each other and develop some best. So where I think that where it's going and where I think there's a real need is in developing um, the field of community farming. Because I think community farms are, are different in that they're not just trying to produce food, they're trying to produce really high quality food, but they're also really trying to engage and educate the community. And when you put those two things together, it's a different organism than a production farm or a pure education garden. It's its own kind of thing. And and in order to well, because put, it's your food as a community member, you get involved in the process because it's you, it's your children, it's your pregnant body that's going to be taking in this nutrition. So it gets quite exciting to be part of that process. Yeah, and in a way, it, it's it's actually a kind of a necessity for the farm to have that kind of volunteer engagement yeah. to, to to work because yeah. you're not based that it's not based off of pure efficiencies of production. And so as a counterbalance, by engaging and inviting community in, you need them to help you do it. And it's a benefit to them to be a part of it. So, so what we, what, what I, the last thing I'll say is that if we can figure out how to support the community farming model, what are the best practices? How, do, how is the knowledge shared? How do... How does the talent pipeline cultivate it? How do people get professional development to have meaningful careers in the field? Not, you know, not come in and get excited and then they can't get a job or make enough money and they can't have the lifestyle that they want, but how do they actually stay in it as a career? And then how do we get more support, mm. more funding? So once you have a field and, and funders and investors see the value of a field and the credibility of a the field, they're more likely to to support it. It has the credibility, it has that shared identity and stuff. So I think we really need to build a field of community farming. <clears throat> um, and a subset of that is the Jewish community farming field. And hopefully there's other yeah. community farming Well, there are, actually. I mean, yeah. the whole monasteries were built on farms. Yeah. So what I see you're doing is returning culture to agriculture. Exactly. It's really well put. 
So it's a great privilege to be with you, Darren. Thanks, Amy. Uh, we're going to watch your future with just the most excited bated breath. So now I will stop.